When I was growing up in the Southeast, I went to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. And in between, uh, we had about four hours. And during that time, uh, we would spend it doing all sorts of things. So uh, we might spend the afternoon playing tennis or basketball or football. Uh, we would also always make sure there was room for what we called the holy nap. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody knows that the best naps that you can take are on Sundays, right? I mean, you take a nap on Sunday, it feels holy, it feels godlike. I think God especially blesses naps on Sunday. Maybe that's just me. But we always uh, did those things on a Sunday. Now, what you need to know is, is that uh, that might sound a lot like what your day is. Maybe you do some yard work, that kind of thing. Uh, those kind of practices, though, would not have cut it for the English Puritan Sabbatarians. Uh, see, they treated Sundays a lot like the Jewish Sabbath. So in other words, that was a day that you had to rest from all of your works and your labors. Now you might say, well, how stringent were they in their rules about Sundays? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I can give you an exact picture, uh, but what might be helpful is listening to a quote about a people who were less stringent than they were, okay? Like, they weren't as strict as these guys. Uh, in fact, we're told in a, uh, by historian Alice Morse Earle that there were Dutch Christians in New Netherland, which is kind of like New York. And, and those Christians uh, were not as strict as the English Puritans on Sundays, Uh, And here's how she goes on to explain. Then she writes, listen close, Sunday was not observed with as much rigidity in New Netherland as in New England, but strict rules and laws were made for enforcing quiet during service time. Okay, so they had some rules. In fact, it says in revolutionary times, a cage was set up in the city hall park near the present New York post office in which boys were confined who did not properly regard the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Like, if you break the rules, we're putting you in the cage. Now, I have three little boys, and I get that. I mean, sometimes there's a temptation. Like, let's lock them up if they're not acting right. But, but here, what we see is, is they took these laws uh, of treating Sunday with respect is extremely serious. And to some of us, that might sound crazy. But still today, uh, we know that there are those who have a strict view of Sunday uh, that is equivalent to that of the Sabbath. In fact, still today, uh, Presbyterians following the Westminster and Baptists who would follow the 1689 Lundus Baptist Confession, uh, they would hold to what they would consider Sabbatarianism. Uh, they think that Sunday is the new Sabbath. Now, both are less strict than the Pharisees here. Even those guys from New Netherlands, even those guys from New England, they are both less strict than the Pharisees who charged Jesus and his disciples with breaking the fourth commandment of Sabbath keeping, which was, hear me, if you broke the Sabbath, it was punishable by death. Now, death is worse than a cage, right? I mean, this is serious. They looked at the Sabbath as being a significant day that you needed to respect. Well, we're right back in Mark's gospel with the amazing true story of Jesus this morning. And thus far, you'll notice that Jesus has been on the move. He's been rapidly performing miracles all around Capernaum of Galilee that constantly left all of those who witnessed stunned, saying something like, we have never seen anything like this before. I mean, this is different. And both sickness and demons respond in fearful obedience to the authoritative voice of this man, Jesus. And the story picks up in chapter 2, 
with a series of episodes where the Pharisees begin to enter into conflict with Jesus and they're challenging popular, popular uh, teachings of Jesus and practices of his disciples. See, Jesus doesn't play by the rules that they've created, right? I mean, he, we've seen he feasts with sinners. Pharisees are not supposed to do that. His disciples don't fast like the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. And this week, they are all worked up because the disciples don't keep the Sabbath. And what we're going to find this morning, our big idea is this, that Jesus is our Sabbath rest who promises a greater rest that is to come. It's our big idea we're going to be talking about this morning. Jesus is our Sabbath rest who promises a greater rest that is to come. Hopefully this is going to shape the way that we think about uh, Sundays and every day in light of Jesus. Now, our first point is this. It's that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath in verses 23 to 28. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. So look there again in, in your copy of God's Word with me in Mark 2. I'm going to look at verses 23 to 24 where uh, we first see uh, a question that, that we need to answer before we can move forward. And that's this. What are the Pharisees so worked up about? Why are they really angry? If we want to understand this text, we need to understand why they're really angry. Now, here's what it says in Mark 2, beginning in 23. It says, One Sabbath, he, being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, what are they doing? What is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are they doing this? Now, as I said before, Sabbath keeping was a big deal for the Jews. Now, let me just give you quick four facts, four quick facts about the Sabbath that help all of us kind of come in together and understand what we're talking about. Because some of you might not have been in church much and might not understand what the Sabbath is. Some of you might have been here for a while and just kind of missed that part of the Bible. And so we want to just kind of come together and need to be reminded about what the Sabbath was. Uh, first, you need to know that it's a commandment, right? So, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, tell us that Sabbath keeping is a commandment of the Lord. Uh, So all of Israel was required to keep the Sabbath. Uh, In fact, this is the longest commandment. And they were told there that Israel must keep Saturday, which is the Sabbath, holy with its sacrifices and rest from all their work, just like God did in Genesis 2 after He had created all things. So it's a commandment. Second, we see that it's a sign, right? So again, in Exodus, Exodus 31, verses 13 to 14, God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath. And he says after that, for, now this is the reason, you keep the Sabbath for, it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Here's why that's important. Covenants have signs, right? So so Noah's covenant had the rainbow. That's a good sign, right? And and then Abraham, his covenant had a sign which was circumcision. All right, moving forward, uh, you get to the the covenant of Moses at Sinai, and and he has the sign of this, the Sabbath. So that's a sign of the covenant that God made with Israel as a people. Now, hang with me here. Uh, I was reading Steve Wellam and Peter Gentry this weekend, and they write that for For the 20th century, uh, they looked for decades. They looked for decades for another people who kept a Sabbath before Israel did. 
Like, where are they getting this from? This Sabbath thing, this rest, this day of rest that everybody has to keep seems so different than anything we find in other literature. See, it really, really did make Israel stand out as being different than the nations that were around them. You can imagine how odd that would get. Like they're fighting, and all of a sudden in the middle of battle, they're like, we're not fighting anymore today. Like, why? It was the Sabbath. God said we can't. We're going to kill you. I'm sorry, it's the Sabbath. You're going to have to do that. I mean, it really, really would strike them as odd. Couldn't make money on the Sabbath. Couldn't work on the Sabbath. Everything had to shut down in honor of their God. It was a sign of their special covenant with God, that they were His people and that He was their God. Third, also, it's punishable. It's punishable. Not keeping the Sabbath. Sabbath breaking. I mean, it was a serious deal. How serious? Well, we're told in Numbers 15, 32 to 36, uh, there was a guy who forgot uh, that he was supposed to keep Sabbath, probably not, probably just disobeyed, and decided to do a little yard work on the Sabbath, right? Anybody done yard work on Sunday? Anybody want to? I've done that. Y'all are like, I don't know. Are we going to stone me? Are we reinstituting something here? No. Like, if you've worked on the yard on Sunday, right, uh, that's kind of what he was probably doing on that day. And he probably stood out because nobody else was doing yard work. And so they bring him before Moses and Aaron, and they're like, what do we do? And they said, we've got to put him to death because this is a capital crime in Israel. It was a significant deal that was punishable. But also, fourth, we find that Pharisees created rules for the rest. Now, here here we're getting into a little bit of what the problem is in our text this morning. We're not just talking about the breaking of Sabbath according to God. We're talking about the breaking of Sabbath according to the Pharisees. See, by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, Pharisees created this elaborate case law. All kinds of little rules about how you were going to obey the laws of the Bible. And so like every law needed like a bunch of laws to clarify. So Sabbath, they had 39 rules for how you were to keep the Sabbath. They had written them out. And they said, if you break these, then you have broken the Sabbath. So here what we find is, is in this time when Jesus shows up, uh, they had this whole apparatus created around the law of God that defined how they would understand the laws and punish them and and regulate them. So for instance, just to give you an idea of what they're talking about, on the Sabbath, you could only walk the distance of about 2,000 cubits, or or that was 3,000 feet. That's 0.596 miles. Why did I not round up? Because if you round up, you die, right? I mean, they were serious about this stuff. And, and so uh, they were very serious about Sabbath keeping. And here, what we know is, is that this is important. Why is it important? Well, because Mark seems to tell us here that the disciples broke the Pharisees' rules, not God's Word. Why would I say that? Well, I mean, the way that he covers it, he doesn't like quibble about what it says. But we know from Deuteronomy 23-25 that it is lawful to pluck grain with your hand if you're walking through a neighbor's field. It's legal. Now, you can't use a sickle because that's work and that's harvesting, but you you can't eat with your hand what is there. You could take grapes, you could pick it up with your hands. This is exactly the kind of thing that we see the disciples doing as they're walking through this grain field. Now, maybe they walk too far when they walk through this grain field, but that's not the issue that seems to be on the forefront, right? It's about this grain. 
We know that this is lawful according to God's law. But here's what's striking. Jesus could have argued their interpretation of the law there. He could have said, well, haven't you read Deuteronomy? But instead, notice what he does. He reminds them of who David and his men were when they ate the holy bread of the presence which stood before the holy of holies and was only to be eaten by the priest. He he points them to David in this unique story in 1 Samuel 21. And he says, I want to talk to you about David. Like, that's what you need to be thinking about. I've got a more important story, more central to what's going on, a point that you have missed. And that brings us to the, the second part of this, Jesus being Lord. The Sabbath here, I think what we see in this picture, he's going to show us the Sabbath actually points to Jesus. Look again in verses 25 to 28 at what, at what Jesus says to them. Look what he says, verses 25 to 28. He says, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did? Which probably wasn't a nice question for Pharisees. They couldn't say no. He says, when he, when he was in need, he was hungry. He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And he ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, at the time of this story that Jesus is mentioning in 1 Samuel 21, uh, we know that Ahimelech, who is Abimelech's dad, was actually high priest, but Abimelech was the big deal, and to that points the time and history when this story took place. And the point of David eating this consecrated bread seems to be that David held a unique kind of authority, which privileged his men with eating this consecrated bread on the Sabbath. There's something unique about the person of David that said, you know what, those, those laws and legal ramifications and qualifications do not apply in this man's case. See, verses 27 to 28 similarly explain that Jesus' main point about his, his, himself and his disciples is this. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So, so first you need to understand, uh, God gave rest not because he needs us to rest, but because we need rest and it's a, a purpose of God's grace. But then he moves on beyond that and he says, so, and this is where he, he ramps it up, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, we've seen this title, the Son of Man, before, right? You'll remember who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man is that character that we read about in uh, Daniel 7, where we get this incredible vision of one who is like the Son of Man, who is descending on earth, right, on a chariot of clouds. And he has come to to show a unique kind of authority on earth. Now, I I told you before, uh, the presidents all drive a limo called the Beast, right? And when you see the beast coming, you know the president's in it. It's, it's his ride. That's what he rolls in. But whenever we see a man riding on clouds, what that tells us is that this is no mere man. This is God. That's how God rolls. God's traveling clouds, right? And so this man who is calm, the son of man, is one who is uh, both fully man but also fully God and that he rides upon the clouds and he descends with a unique kind of authority upon the earth. And so here what Jesus is saying is, I am the son of man. The son of man is also God, the God-man, me, Jesus Christ. 
See, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the Pharisees try to lord their rules about the Sabbath over Jesus. But Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Just think about it. Jesus here, he could have quibbled over Scripture, having authority over their interpretations of the law, but instead, what he does for them is he zooms in and then zooms out to give them a huge picture, the big picture, where he claims authority over the Sabbath itself. I mean, what kind of man does this? Can you see the escalation of the revelation of Jesus' authority here in Mark? He is authoritative, as we've already seen, in his words and in his actions. He has shown himself to be authoritative over spiritual powers and physical sickness. He has the ability to forgive sins. And here, in relation to the most sacred of divine institutions for Israel, the Sabbath, he says, I am Lord over it too. I mean, it's not man in general or the disciples that are Lord over the Sabbath. It is Jesus himself. In other words, Jesus says, you need to shift your focus from the disciples to the Lord who they are following. You are not seeing Jesus for who Jesus is. Now in the Old Testament, I think it's really interesting to look at what the authors point to as the ground for Sabbath keeping. Because I believe that Jesus actually has a part in fulfilling what each one of these purposes points to. So you'll remember that if you read through the Old Testament, that the first time we find the Sabbath mentioned in the Ten Commandments, uh, we're told that you are to keep the Sabbath, and the reason is, is because God rested after He created all things, right? So it's grounded in creation, in God's creative work. God grounds the Sabbath in creation where God worked for six days and on the sixth day He created man is the climax of that creation. But hear me, He's not done. That might be the climax, but it's not the culmination, right? The culmination is the seventh day in which God rested. And while the other days have morning and night showing an end, you'll notice that that last day, that seventh day, there is no beginning or end. It culminates in an expression of the divine glory of God who created all things, saying, I am the one that all of this points to forever. There's no end to the fact that my glory is to be magnified in all of these things that I've made. And when God created man and set him as his cherry on the top of his creation, he said, it is finished. There is nothing that man needs to do to this grand work that I have done. It is complete. It is perfect. It is good. It is very good. See, that's God. God rested because He had finished that incredible work. That's one way we see it pointed to. A second way that we see the Sabbath pointed to in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is in Deuteronomy 5, right? We find here again that they're, they're commanded to keep the Sabbath. Israel is. And, and there we find that God grounds it in something different. Here He doesn't point to creation, but He points to the Exodus. In fact, there we find in Deuteronomy 5 that God reminds them that they are to keep the Sabbath and remembrance of the time when they were enslaved in Egypt under that tyrannical Pharaoh. And he led them and delivered them out into the promised land, rescuing them from slavery. 
So he brought them freedom. And he said, I want you to remember this on the Sabbath. They keep the Sabbath. And, and I want you to let your slaves that you have, I want you to let them as well to have a break and a rest. Let them keep Sabbath as a remembrance of how you were once slaved and I gave you rest. See, it's a, a glorious picture of God's salvation. So here's the deal though. I believe that Jesus really begins to unfold a deep spiritual reality about the nature of who he is. I believe he's telling the Jews that the Sabbath not only pointed them backwards towards creation, but forwards towards new creation. And the Sabbath not only pointed backwards towards redemption from physical slavery in Egypt, but forwards to a great redemption that would come through Jesus, who like a new and better Joshua would lead his people into a greater promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, where we would receive an even better rest. Do you see it? Creation, for us, we have Jesus Christ who has begun a new creation with a new and better covenant. Slavery, for us, wasn't slavery to uh, physical nations like Egypt. Our slavery was to sin, death, and the devil. That tyrannical leader who has had authority over our lives and our future. And Jesus came to rescue us because his authority knows no bounds. And his covenant means that we have been rescued and we are promised full restoration that is coming. That's why I believe if you look at this same story in Matthew. In Matthew 11, right before he gives this same story in Matthew 12, he proceeds it with this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. He tells all who are listening, right before he talks about the Sabbath, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you hear it? If you want the rest that you've been waiting for every seventh day and looking forward towards, I want you to know it's arrived and it's me. It's not in a place, it's in a person, it's in Jesus Christ. It's not in a day, it's in a man. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, this is what Christ has come to tell us. Maybe this morning, you have come here and you know that you have not put your faith in Christ and you are wondering, what does all of this talk about rest have to do with me? Well, let me just ask you, are you tired? Are you restless in your soul? Do you long for hope? I believe you do. Do you long for meaning and a belief that you were made for not just today, but for the future, and that there really is something more that's out there? It can't just be this. Well, friend, the rest that you long for isn't going to be found in a day. It is going to be found in a person that is Jesus Christ. You will not find that rest in any lasting way in a weekend, in a holiday, in the retirement that you long for. Uh, that, that summer vacation, you know, you know how summer vacation is never long enough? It's because you know that you were made for something more. You were made for a world that is not here. Something more that is to come. And, and we need, and you need this morning, if you've not done so, to put your faith in Him, in Jesus Christ. And He will give your weary soul rest. A down payment today and more to come. See, Jesus lived a perfect life in your place, obeying all the rules for you. All those rules, all those rules that you feel like you can never live up to a standard. Like you know there's this bar that you don't even know where it's at, that you just can't meet. Jesus came for you to give you rest, to know that he kept the standard for you.
And, and even if you could keep the standards, you look at the past and you think, but what about all of the sins that I've committed? And even the sins that I will that I don't even want to, and even those that I do. Like, what, what, what will I do? How can I rest knowing who I am, the struggles that I have? Jesus, once and for all, put to death those struggles and those sins on the cross for you, that you might rest in God. And if you're wondering yourself, I think it's just too much to believe that that could be true for me. That that rest could actually be something that I might take a hold of. Maybe He does that for other people, but not me. God Himself raised His Son from the dead to do something even more amazing. Say, if I can do this, then I can forgive you. Friends, that's the Gospel message for you this morning. Don't leave here without talking to me or another Christian, we would love to talk to you about how you can find the rest that your soul longs for. Friend, it is not to be found in a day or a place. It is to be found in a person, and that is Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. A Christian, I think this has something to say to us as well. Did you know that the Sabbath was but a dim shadow of what we have received in Jesus? In Paul's magisterial treatment of Jesus Christ in Colossians, if you've ever read it, you know that he gives grand visions of Christ and who he is, almost unparalleled in all of the Bible. And it's there that he says in Colossians 2, 16 to 18, he's speaking of Sabbath, Sabbath days amongst other things, says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to to festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Don't let anybody judge you because of a Sabbath. And he goes on to say in verse 17, these things like the Sabbath, food and drink, those laws required about those, these, he says, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance that belongs to Christ. Do you see it? The shadow was the Sabbath. The substance is Jesus and Jesus we have. And so why do we need to settle for shadows anymore? I mean, it seems regressive, doesn't it? Once we have Christ. And catch what Paul says. Don't let anyone judge you with how you treat the Sabbath because it was just a shadow and the substance belongs to Christ. Do you see it? Jesus here, He launches the new creation from the cross. When He said, it is finished. You hear it? It is finished. In the same way that God worked and then said, it is done. Christ came and did His cross work and He said, I am done. My work is complete. There is nothing that you can add to or take away from the work that I have done. It is all of grace. God loves you in Christ. Not based on the works that you do for Him, but based on what Christ has done. And it is done. We don't have to pretend that we haven't sinned. I didn't do that. It wasn't me. Is that really sin? Is that really the law? I think I had a good... uh, you know, reason for that, right? I'm going to make excuses for sin. I didn't sin. I make excuses for sin. Uh, maybe you just don't do either. You just feel like a second-rate a second rate citizen, right? Second-class citizen. You don't really fit into God's people. So we don't have to pretend any of that anymore. We don't have to do any of that anymore. If we are in Christ, we are in, and we are in in the full. And we have the full and lavish love of the Father for the Son upon us. Now that's amazing grace, isn't it? It is for me. But catch this. I believe every human heart struggles to truly rest in Christ before God. Isn't it funny? It's such a fight for us to rest. 
He doesn't come naturally, does it? I mean, isn't that in some ways a, a self-proof? That there's something wrong with us that we want to rest so badly and yet we have to fight so hard to rest? That there's something at work in us that fights the thing that we long for? So that in some ways we're our biggest enemies? See, that's exactly the thing that we have been called to. God has made us to rest in Him. I believe the real problem that we have is that there's a little legalist in all of us nailing man-made rules onto Christ, the greater Sabbath, like Pharisees. See, Pharisees created rules to make them feel better before God based on their works rather than God's grace. And so when we sin, we create exclusion clauses for while we sin. Exception clauses so that we might fit into the grid that we create. And the the real problem, I believe, with legalism, one is it doesn't work. Two is it defames Christ. We'll talk more about that later. But three is, is we usually can't even keep our own rules, right? Like we make rules about what's right, and then we can't keep it. And then we have to create a clause so that we didn't break our own rule. And how often do you see your kids do this? Right? They, they, they sin, they, they pop their brother. And then you're like, what did you do? And it's like, well, Dad, he, you know, he stole my goldfish. I'm like, there's a, a Costco box of goldfish on the counter. Bought it last week. Promises to be able to feed you for the next three years. And you had to have that goldfish. It's about, the, it's about doing the right thing, Dad, right? It's about following the rules. <laughs> oh, how we, how we do the same thing as adults. Running around, giving excuses for why we sin and why we're better than others. We're a little legalist in all of us. And notice, on what seems to be the same day, that Jesus enters the synagogue itself on the Sabbath to display His Lordship over the Sabbath. And there are two responses. There are two different responses to the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, look with me again. Maybe you missed it the first time, but let's, let's look at it. In chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. Look at what happens. It says, again, he being Jesus, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of hearts, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, you'll notice two responses here. As Jesus comes in and heals this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue, a place where he has healed others, you'll remember already in Mark, on the Sabbath. But here, see if you can, see, see and look at what happens in these two responses. First, you have the response of the Pharisees. You'll notice the Pharisees seek to bring death to the Lord of life. Let me just catch how hard their hearts are. Jesus walks into the synagogue in what is probably Capernaum, uh, where he's already, they've already seen him heal a man of leprosy on the Sabbath. But this time a man has a withered hand and he awaits. And we're told the Pharisees watched 
Jesus. Now, as you read that, that could mean a lot of things, right? I mean, if Jesus is watching something, that, that could be taken in different ways. Uh, so, for instance, it could be taken in that innocuous, sort of, I'm at the mall watching people kind of way. Same way that maybe you watch animals at the zoo, except it's a mall, right? You're just kind of watching, you're curious. You're like, I wonder how families are going to interact, what people are going to do. I uh, wonder if somebody's going to, like, trip or something. I can go, oh, you know, you're just, you're just curious, just watching, or maybe, as he's, as they're watching, it could be that they're watching in the sense of someone famous. I mean, Jesus is pretty famous in this area right now. And they just can't believe maybe that he's standing before them, waiting to see what he does. Or maybe, maybe they're just watching in the sense of someone who, who doesn't want you to watch them, right? I mean, there's also a creepy type of walking, watching, like a stalker. It's really creepy. So how are they watching Jesus? Well, here it says the Pharisees watched Jesus to catch him. They wanted to watch him catch him breaking their laws about the Sabbath that they might accuse him. I'm not aware of any law about miraculous healings on the Sabbath. But to be sure, they plan to use the law to bring harm, not help, right? I mean, they're looking for a lynching squad on the very day that Jesus has come to give this man new life. And Jesus is angered and grieved by their hardness of hearts. In fact, after Jesus heals him, you'll notice the Pharisees saddle up with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Uh, those are the guys who, who basically follow Herod and Tippus. And you're like, well, is he a bad guy? Well, you know, probably at this point in the Bible, if you're a leader, you are. Uh, but we know that he was especially bad because this is a guy who had John the Baptist beheaded, right? So here you've got these Pharisees who were so worried about keeping the law, saddling up to a guy who just, uh, we were just told will later behead John the Baptist if he hasn't already done it. I mean, these are not good guys. And so why do they do this? Well, it's because they want to destroy Jesus. They'd rather cling to their rules that only bring death than to submit to the ruler of life. And here's an autopsy of a a self-righteous person in these Pharisees. You'll see a number of things about what a self-righteous person looks like. We've seen this before, but here's some more that we're given here. Notice, uh, I count five. You could find find more this afternoon. But one, notice that they look for the failures in others to tear them down. Right? I mean, they're watching others and there is, there's an eye to, to tear others down. There's not that hope to bring life and encouragement to correct in a way that makes them better than when they left. They kind of just want to see things like be broken. It's a self-righteousness. Second, they use rules to build themselves up and give them authority over others. You know, so, so maybe that's you this morning. You, you struggle with lust, but you're not as bad as that guy who cheated on his wife, Right? You're not as bad as the guy who's addicted to looking at stuff. You're you're not that bad. So you must be pretty good. And you've created rules in your heart, even if you haven't put them on the wall, that make you feel better about yourself and you're resting in those things. You use your rules to make yourself feel better. Trusting in them rather than trusting in Christ. Uh, Third, you hate the grace and restoration that Jesus ushers in. Can't imagine that a human heart would respond in this way. I bet all of us, when we read this, want to think, there's no way that I could be like this guy, right? Or these guys. There's no way that 
If Jesus were to come in here and, and heal someone, that I would be this guy. And, and my hope is in, in the Holy Spirit and with Christ that we're not that guy. But without Jesus, we're this guy. Without Christ and His Spirit changing us, transforming us, working in and through us, we're this guy who we don't want to see restoration. We want to see destruction. Because it makes us feel like we are, we are less for all that we have done. You don't want to see grace because if Jesus displays grace and power and restoration, He is more and I must become less. There's a fourth thing that we see about the Pharisee legalistic heart. It's that self-righteousness is actually treason against Jesus. You can't miss it here, really. It's treason against Jesus. These legalistic standards that they've created, it's not just that it's a bad or insufficient law. It actually flies in the face of the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus. Why? Self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness is actually putting up yourself and your own standard of righteousness on the throne of your life rather than resting in the righteousness that has been brought near to you in the person of Jesus Christ. On the the throne of your heart, rest your own standards and yourself rather than Jesus is king. And and that is what matters in your heart if you are self-righteous. And that is why there is nothing but destruction that you want to be seen done. Jesus is the Lord of life. Only good things come from Him. Not us in and of ourselves. Only through Christ, from the Father, by the power of the Spirit. And fifth, That's why self-righteous people are often tired and angry, blaming others and failing to confess shortcomings. They have not received the rest only to be had in Christ. And let me just say, this is me, maybe even today. All of us, to some degree, become angry and tired and weary because we have not taken time to meditate afresh on God's life-giving word, to pray, to seek Him, to obey Him. We, when we do that, we are less for it. When we begin to try to think that God is pleased with us, even because of our best deeds for Him, and that that is the ground of His love for us, we have missed Jesus. We have missed our King. And we've begun, in maybe even a small way, to begin to ascend the throne that is only for Christ. Friends, we need to be constantly immersing ourselves and the authority of Jesus Christ, who is alone Lord of the Sabbath. There is no rest that is to be found in us or our efforts that is only to be found in Him. But there is good news. There is good news. Jesus came to restore and to bring rest, even at the cost of His life. Notice here, there's a second person in this story. The man with the withered hand. And Jesus told the man, stretch out your hand. And what does He do? He stretched it out and His hand was restored. I mean, you probably just glossed over that, right? Like, are we done yet with the Sabbath? And it's like, oh, by the way, just in passing, Jesus healed a man's withered hand. I'm guessing that this man didn't gloss over that. The man with the withered hand his whole life, who wasn't able to to work or to function in the ways that others could. He couldn't play games like the other kids could on the Sabbath. Like, it wasn't a struggle for him because he couldn't play anyway. He didn't have an arm, right? Wasn't working. Maybe, but I don't know. He just, and on this day, everything changes as he comes before Jesus. He's given restoration and new life. Everything changes for him. All of this in the context of Pharisees looking on, wanting to find a reason to kill Jesus. This man finds incredible life. In other words, he received a foretaste. 
hear me, of what Jesus promises to usher in when he returns at the second coming to restore all things. All withered hands get healed on the last day, right? All of us look forward to that day. We all, our legs are healed, our bodies are healed, cancer is eradicated, everything is new. I mean, this is just a snapshot of what awaits us. And why is his arm healed? It's because he trusted and obeyed the voice of his sovereign king. I mean, what a good thing to obey Jesus. Always results in life. And notice this text doesn't present this man as a scholar. He's not presented as a scholar. He's not a rabbi. He is an ordinary average Joe, like many of us. He's sitting there and he is waiting and he does not know enough to reject Jesus, right? (laughs) Doesn't know enough to trust his own deeds. All he knows enough to do is to trust and to obey. And it makes all the difference. You'll notice here, he is known, this man, by nothing more than his brokenness and Christ's healing. Isn't that amazing? That's the story of his life. You will know me because I am the man who had the withered hand who was healed by Jesus. And isn't that all of our stories? Isn't that our identity? That God has healed our wounds in Christ and we long for that one day when we ultimately will be found reunited with him at the final consummation when we will be with Christ forever. And he will be the one who defines our identity forever, not our own righteous deeds, not even our best deeds, but Christ and his work finished at the cross. Hebrews 4 tells us there's an even greater Sabbath rest that awaits us when Christ returns to bring in the new heavens and the new earth where we too will be restored. And this morning, we're about to baptize a couple of young men I'm excited about, great men, but they will be confessing as they are baptized that their lives, like this man, have been changed by Jesus who invited them and all of us to come and follow him so that he might make us new. So I'm excited about Hanul and Namir coming to be baptized. They, like all of us who are in Christ, are sinners saved by grace. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know again, this is hope that is for you today. And Christ says, come here to you in the same way that he said, come here to that man. And I hope that you will come to him. Don't deny him. Come and receive his healing. Because Jesus is our Sabbath rest who promises a greater rest that is to come. Now, as I close out this morning, uh, I might be wrong for ending without making a few quick observations about the Sabbath and Sunday. So we're going to do this really quickly. And then if, if you disagree with me, you can yell at me at the door afterwards and we can deal with it. Uh, but we don't have time for you to yell at me now. So let's just wait. Um, hopefully we won't yell, right? Uh, but just some thoughts about the Sabbath, because some of you might be thinking, okay, now I don't know if I know what to do on Sunday. And I don't want you to leave like that because it's Sunday. So here we go. A uh, few bullet points real quick. First, remember how we understand the Sabbath and Sunday, that Sabbath was a sign for Israel and the covenant at Sinai. But we have a new and better covenant in Christ. And so because the Sabbath was a shadow and Christ is the substance, I don't believe that we're required to keep the Sabbath like Israel was. So in the early church, Gentile Christians observed Sunday as a day of worship, Gentile Christians, because it was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. We see that in Acts 20, right? But we find that Jewish Christians practice both the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. So there's, there's that. They understood that they were different days with different meanings, uh, Tom Schreiner, second, says most church fathers did not practice a Sabbath day and interpreted either spiritually or in, in the present as a future reality coming. Third, some Christians use the Sabbath to inform how they keep the Lord's day. 
And, and I think it's fine if you want to incorporate some of the practices of the Sabbath into the Lord's Day. It's good to rest. I love holy naps, right? I mean, it's a good thing to think about resting on Sunday. It's a good thing to make it a day of worship. And I think that's fine, but so long as you don't make others feel guilty for not observing it, right? Romans 14, you remember Romans 14? Like some respect certain days is more holy than others, others don't. What's most important, Paul says, is that you're convinced in your own mind. That's what's most important. And so you don't want to make others feel guilty um, for not observing it in the same way. And, and also, it's okay to do it so long as you're not trusting in your Sabbath keeping for some kind of pleasure with God above salva- for salvation. Uh, fourth, I think it's good to, res- uh, to rest physically from labors, uh, but Jesus is the greater rest. Just remember that. Uh, Jesus is better than a nap. I think that's a good slogan, right? Jesus is better than a nap. Jesus is better than retirement. Uh, he, he's better than that stuff. Uh, and then finally, uh, one should set aside Sunday to worship Jesus and should, and should not let games prevent you from worshiping Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the big problem was that you would play games after church, Right? Uh, like on the day of Sunday, because you weren't treating the day as holy. Uh, today, the biggest problem I find as a pastor is that people skip church so that they go play games. And I think that it's important that we understand that meeting together as the people of God is still a significant thing. Your presence on a Sunday morning is an evangelistic effort. Uh, we are told by, by Jesus in uh, John thirteen thirty four to 35 that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And by this love, all men will know that we are his disciples. Now guys, what that means is is we're gathering regularly in the same place and same time enough that people can look on at this body and say that it's something, it's a group of people, a thing. And also, they're looking on long enough to say that, oh, and, and they're doing this continuous love thing with one another, and they're diverse, and they're committed to one another. And so it's important for us to understand being here Sunday morning, it is evangelistic. It's about encouraging other Christians. It's about worshiping God, but it's also about displaying our love before one another so that it's a display to a dying world who needs to hear about Jesus. So if we're serious about seeing people come to Jesus, we need to be serious about meeting together faithfully and, and proclaiming the goodness of God and displaying it in the way that we treat one another. So that's what I've got for Sunday. Uh, I would say on Sunday, be faithful in coming on Sunday mornings. Be ready when you come to show up, to love one another. Uh, Be ready to love outsiders and seek to make the goodness of God known to all. Let's pray.